Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Random Trek Review, the podcast where we analyze, discuss, and review randomly selected Star Trek episodes. My name is Andrew, and I will be joined this week by my good buddy, Matt, as always. But uh, unfortunately, Matt, you're going to need to supply a blood test this week to ensure that you are not, in fact, a changeling. So roll up your sleeve. Uh, Let's prove that uh, you are, in fact, the real Matt. Well, I certainly would uh, like to roll up my sleeve for another reason, but uh, yeah, I'm happy to provide a blood test to prove I am who I say I am and that I'm not uh, secretly plotting to uh, destroy RTR from the inside out. Now, the real question is, is your blood type B positive the same as Dr. Bashir? Uh, it isn't, actually. It looks like It looks like it's all good here. It looks like your blood did not turn into, uh, you know, changeling purple color, so we can continue on. Uh, with the podcast from here. Yeah, I'm shaking the vial in front of you. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have to start out the episode uh, falling on the sword, as it were. Uh, it's the first time that it's happened, but uh, this is actually a RTR mistake. Uh, last week, uh, we pulled out, of course, the Deep Space Nine episode in Purgatory Shadow, and I did my recall on everything, but in fact, in Purgatory Shadow is a part two episode, which maybe would have helped me a little bit, I don't know, uh, but uh, it turns out that it's a two-part episode, and so next week we are going to inf- do the second half. Uh, by Inferno's Light. So, uh, Matt, why don't you give me a recall for uh, this particular episode, and then next week we're both going to get a little bit of a respite, so we won't have to worry about doing a recall. So, uh, this week, uh, I think I did a switcheroo, but nonetheless, give me a rating out of five Dominion Invasion Fleets. <clears throat> I'd like to reassure all our listeners that our, uh, our, our administrative assistant who deals with the ep- putting the episodes in the hat was... Uh, severely disciplined over this uh, minor uh, <laughs> minor mishap he, he went he got demoted like uh, t- Tom Paris exactly for 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 uh, you know a year and a half or uh, there will be a, an en- a lowly ensign rather than a lieutenant in the RTR uh, Starfleet uh, as for your uh, your recall at the end of our last podcast uh, yeah you definitely uh, did a bit of a switcheroo you were talking about how uh, Kira and Odo and I think Garrick got, uh, you know, transported through time back to when Deep Space Nine was still under the Cardassian occupation. And, uh, you know, Odo, there, there was some deep, dark secret that got uncovered that, you know, Odo did something that he shouldn't have back in those days. And I, th- I know the episode that you were thinking of, I believe it's called Things Past. I'm not Perhaps. 100% sure. I didn't look it up. Pretty good recall of that episode, but um, unfortunately you didn't really make any mention of any Dominion invasion fleets or Garrick or Worf going off on chasing after a you know long lost distress call from Tane or anything like that. So um, unfortunately 
Um, it would have been nice for the for the characters in the in this episode if there were zero out of five Dominion invasion <laughs> fleets, but unfortunately, uh, they're not so good for you. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to go zero out of five. Uh, you know, a little classic switcheroo as we are both very prone to doing. Yeah, the switcheroo has been the tale of season three RTR. We have had a lot of switcheroos. Uh, I guess maybe that's just what happens when you watch too much Trek. You get them all jumbled and switched and, and mixed around. So um, this, of course, is in Purgatory Shadow. It is from Deep Space Nine, Season 5, Episode 14. Its original air date was February the 10th, 1997. And the guest stars, uh, lots of big-time guest stars here. We've got Andrew J. Robinson as Garrick. We've got Mark Alamo as Gal Dukat. Melanie Smith, uh, I think this may be her first time playing Zial. We've got J.G. Hertzler playing Mortok, or Martok, and James Horan as Ikatika, I think it's pronounced. Ikatika. Uh, Ikatika. Well, well played. Well said. Uh, this <laughs> one was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf, and it was directed by Gabrielle Beaumont. Now, if you did what I did and did the old switcheroo, you maybe need a little bit of a synopsis just so that you're in the right headspace for which episode this is. While looking at some Cardassian intercepted codes for Starfleet, Garrick deciphers an important hidden message from his former mentor, Enabrin Tain. He tries to sneak away only to be stopped by Dr. Bashir, who smelt that something was up. Starfleet decides to send Worf along with Garrick to investigate, and they are glad that they did as Worf and Garrick stumble upon an entire fleet of Jem'Hadar ships waiting in a nebula just inside the wormhole. Worf is able to get a message off just in time so that the station can prepare for the imminent invasion, but then he and Garrick are put into an asteroid-like prison that is supposedly inescapable. They find General Martok there, who has been there for two years and... Dun-dun-dun... Dr. Bashir. In one of the great Trek surprises of all time, Dr. Bashir has been replaced with a changeling on the station. And that's not the only surprise that we have, as it turns out, in a very Empire Strikes Back-like reveal, that Emmerdin Tain is in fact Garrick's father. All right, Matt. Now, I don't know that we necessarily need to give our overall impressions here. I think that it's safe to say that this is, uh, you know, one of the more shocking uh, episodes of uh, of Star Trek. Uh, I can definitely remember the first time that I had watched it. It was kind of like a one-two punch, as it were, you know, almost as if, you know, in boxing, it's just like boom, boom. Um, what are your thoughts of this happening kind of originally? I know you watched it during the original run. Um, this was one of the things that remained secret to me watching it years and years later. But do, do you remember this being a, a big moment kind of uh, watching it live? Absolutely, yeah. I, I still remember pretty clearly when, you know, they're, they're, they first meet Martok and then, they're they're like oh they're bringing uh so they're bringing him out of uh solitary or whatever and then they they're like oh who's this and they're like oh another and martok i think says like a, a friend or something along those lines and yeah and they bust in and there's bashir in like the old school like the older style uniform and i was like oh my god that is crazy how long like like in, in the sort of questions that are going through your mind are like how long has this been going on for and well what's the other Bashir up to and it's like it's it's like whoa yeah now do you think that that one maybe overshadows the Garrick's father bit that we get at the end of the episode do you think maybe they should have flip reversed them yes I think having Bashir closer to the end would have been 
a bit more way more shocking yeah exactly i think it does overshadow the the, i i think the the garrick and tain part of it was maybe a little bit more subdued than it it could have been but yeah it was i mean that's two pretty big pretty big things because even though we don't see tain a whole lot i mean we know that there is a connection between him and garrick but we don't know that it's you know that it's you know father son we think it's mentor protege. Yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely shocking. And I mean, I think that it's fair to say that, uh, you know, everybody would have been waiting on the edge of their seats uh, to I'm assuming this was probably like the next week. This could have been really almost an end of the season kind of cliffhanger, really. I seem to remember that it was consecutive weeks because I know it was pretty shocking, but I don't seem to remember Having to stir, biting your nails, or yeah. Anything. Having to rip my hair out or stir, you know, going stir crazy for more than a week to get the conclusion of it. But yeah, I mean, imagine going to a, a see, you know, going into the summer with that. That's like that. That would have just been cruel. Yeah, I mean, we can kind of talk a bit more about it as we get to the plot points and stuff. Just some background development stuff about this, and there's actually quite a bit on this episode, but one of the more original and interesting things is that this was supposed to be an Eddington story from, like, years prior. Like, this actually goes back to, like, the early 90s. Like, I think 93 was when the original incarnation of this episode was written, uh, and it basically got mothballed, stuck in the drawer, and then uh, somebody, I guess, dusted it off and thought, thought that it might be a good idea. Do you see any of that like Maquis Eddington stuff in this? Or do you kind of feel like this is so perfect for the Dominion and so perfect for uh, what we get right now? Well, I feel like the like they sort of went a different direction with Eddington. I mean, they did eventually sort of clear that whole thing up. In fact, I think the episode was not that far after this one where there's some like clandestine transmission from Eddington and Cisco goes after him and then it turns out that a bunch of the Maquis like the Maquis basically got slaughtered once the you know the Dominion joins up with Cardassia and it was like a code for like you know all the you know there's survivors and they're at this such and such a location and then Cisco and Eddington have to go rescue them and veered into a different direction I don't know really how you kind of change this story to be more of like a Maquis Eddington kind of story thing i think it probably worked much better the way it was so it's interesting that you mentioned that because this episode was part of kind of a series of episodes i'm assuming this eddington one you're speaking of uh, is included uh that is meant to kind of tie up some loose ends and i guess kind of clean the you know clean the kitchen before the big war starts uh now I did not really think that when I was watching it. I, I didn't even really necessarily see it, but I guess there is a certain there's a certain extent that they're trying to clean stuff up from kind of I guess before the war, and then there's going to be the war part that runs to the end of the series. Do you see that? And and do you kind of uh, are you one of those people actually? Do you have to clean the kitchen before you cook, or uh, do you just uh, you know throw everything in the pots uh, even though there's uh, stuff in the sink? I don't necessarily do, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't really know that there's a whole lot of loose ends that get tied up in this. I mean, I guess we get a conclusion to in Auburn Tain's life, but that that wasn't really a loose thread. It was just kind of a nice thing that they put in. I mean, I don't really know what loose threads there, there were. 
Well, I guess, like, if you think about what we had seen of Martok before this particular episode, like, he's not really the same kind of character, but then he's going to be introduced here and become a major part of the next, uh, let's call it two and a half seasons. I feel like also, like, the changelings being undercover espionage saboteurs this is kind of close to the end of that like this is kind of where it goes from being uh cloak and dagger to full-on war and maybe that's part of what they were kind of thinking as well was that they're not going to be able to do a lot of these you know who's who uh kind of stuff it's going to be like yeah we're at war and it's this is the way that it is you think maybe zeal's thing kind of as well maybe that they wanted to hurt like her and ducat were sort of on good terms but he was never around because he was always off doing his like you know gorilla thing against the klingons and so i guess this kind of puts them more at odds before we get into that whole war thing maybe that's part of it and ducat i would say this is kind of transitioning into the next incarnation of Ducat, right? Um, We get so many different versions of him, and this is definitely a turning point where he, you know, he kind of turncoats here soon, doesn't he not? Uh, Yeah, he certainly does. (laughs) So this is kind of the end of, like, Cardassian, you know, head honcho, and soon he's going to be the turncoat. So, um, I mean, I I think that there is... um, yeah, there is some of these loose ends kind of tying up or or at least just kind of straightening them up before we head into the big war, which is still a few episodes away. Um, now, originally the ending was also going to be a bit more straightforward, um, but I guess with Garrick and Tane and, and the Cardassians, they never want to do anything that's just, you know, played for straight. So, um, you know, he was originally just going to be like, I love you, son, and that was going to be it. But I guess they chose to do it in a little bit more uh, opaque way. Uh, I think that that's the, the right move, personally. Do you kind of have a thought one way or another? Absolutely. I mean, Tane is not going to be straight about anything. And just like Garrick is never straight about anything, it would be almost disappointing, I think, that there wasn't a bit of, like, you know, verbal jawing, I get. I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, verbal maneuvering to finally get Tane to acknowledge and, and accept... Garrick as his son and him to admit that Garrick is his son it would it, it I mean because those two are, are always you know manipulating and, and telling half truths it would have been it would have really fallen flat I think if Tane had just come out with it yeah exactly I, I'm right with you and I mean unless you came up with any other kind of background information I, I kind of almost feel like this is one of those episodes where you know, should we just jump into the plot and, and like take a great big bite? Or did you come across anything interesting in your travels? The only thing that I would I would say before we dive right into this is um, IMDb. Now, I will say they're not an authoritative, uh, you know, ranking system by any means, but they do have a, a top 100 Star Trek episodes list. And when I looked through it, uh, I counted eight Deep Space Nine episodes ahead of these two on that list. According to IMDb, which is, it, it these are these two this this two part episode would be in their top ten as far as best Deep Space Nine episodes go. So I I thought that was, I thought it was interesting, but I I don't think it's uh, unwarranted. Um, the, you know, these are two pretty pretty heavy uh, pretty heavy episodes, I would say. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, would, I mean, I would have to sit down for a long time to come up with a top 10 Star Trek or top 10 Deep Space Nine episodes, but I mean, it, it, this would be probably close, yeah. You will remember that I did a, a an RTR blog where I counted down my top 10 Deep Space Nine. I'm actually kind of embarrassed that this one uh, was nowhere to be found in that, uh, in that blog. I think maybe if I were to go back and do it again, I might rethink that. Yeah, let's get to the plot. Uh, the first thing I am hit with right when I flip on my uh, my streaming service is that uh, I guess Odo must have recently been switched back into a changeling. And this is one thing I would say is kind of annoying with any serialized show. Uh, and that's just that you're kind of left being like, oh, where was this? What was happening? So we get this scene with Odo and uh, I guess he's back to shifting and changing and uh we get kind of that funny little bit where he's got the relationship book and i guess maybe they're foreshadowing a little bit of you know future you know hunk odo um <laughs> does that stuff bother you or are you kind of just like oh yeah this is where it is because you've seen this so many times yeah when you're like a seasoned viewer you you probably can figure out where you are i looked it up and it was actually two episodes prior um so it was yeah it was pretty recent and i mean it is kind of a nice little reminder i guess that he was human for a period of time but i think i think there's enough there that you you kind of are able to sort of piece together what's what's happening and yeah the the like romance book was hilarious he had a funny line. I forget what it was exactly now. I didn't write it down. But... I only read three chapters. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was that was pretty good. It was pretty. It was a nice. It was a nice, funny little scene to start things off. And they definitely do this. This is not the first time we've had this conversation. When they have kind of a heavy, deep episode, they'll sometimes put, uh, you know, a little bit of a joke or or something light off the top. Because remember, we just saw this recently this this season with Welcome to Corks come to quarks or whatever it was um and i kind of felt like that's what this was as well so uh obviously the more important half is that there's a secret message that's been intercepted it's cardassian and they are going to use garrick the resident uh, cardassian expert uh to, to to crack the codes kind of eh i mean it's it's a great episode, but I definitely think that it's a, a slow burner, don't you think? Like, it's a slow and low. This is not your uh, Andorian incident, kick down the door, get going. This is more of like a slow build up to uh, an exciting kind of middle. Would you agree? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I mean, there, the producers had some comments about sort of the pacing of the two episodes, but I mean, we can maybe get into that in the next podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, the beginning is kind of slow. Um, you know, Garrick is summoned to crack some code and he, what was it that he said, told them that it was, I forget. It was like garments or something like uh Gardassian uh, linen service or something. Yeah. He, he made up something that sounded absolutely outlandish. And then, you know, he tries to like sneak away to, you know, steal a runabout and, and Bashir's like, you know, the, the chair spins around and he's like going somewhere, you know, like he knows him so well that he was lying. Well, I mean, this isn't Bashir though, right? This is the changeling looking like Bashir. Is that part of the plan though, I guess, is that they, they want to stop Garrick from going perhaps maybe, or he wants to stop him from going because he, he may bump into the fleet or something. I don't know. That's an interesting... I never thought of that, actually. 
I never, I, I, that's an interesting thought of like, maybe, yeah, maybe they were trying to stop him, but they didn't do a very good job because he no. went anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, it backfires and it kind of becomes more of a, uh, more of kind of a, a Starfleet undercover mission, like uh, black ops or something. So Cisco decides that, you know, they're going to send Worf and Garrick to kind of just go and do uh, some investigating. And we get kind of the very... I don't know, like the going away to war scene where, you know, Dax is upset and Zial is upset and everybody's upset. Um, what is it that makes this particular um, adventure seemingly so much more dangerous? Is it just because tensions are kind of getting high and they've had a couple of close calls of late? I mean, I feel like they were going to the Gamma Quadrant like all the time. Like this shouldn't be something that everyone's so concerned about. Or is it just for us, the audience, so that we understand like, oh, this is more serious than the usual? I thought it was I thought they knew that it was in Dominion territory. And I think that's maybe why they, it was kind of dangerous. But I maybe I don't remember that correctly. But that scene with Dax and Worf was pretty funny where she's like Klingon opera pilfering his Klingon opera. And she's like, well, what are you worried that I'll misplace them? And he like, and you know, we know we've talked about how Worf is, you know, he's very, very much stuck in his ways. And yes, very, very, very anal about things like that. And, and uh, you know, just like the, I mean, Michael Dorn played it pretty well too. Like just the look on his face as she's like, I'm going to borrow your Klingon operas. And he, you know, he can, you know, he doesn't want to say no, but at the same time, you know, he doesn't want her to take them because he doesn't think that she's going to be, you know, she's going to be able to return all of them. And <laughs> I thought it was a pretty, I thought that was a good scene. I know. I guess they don't have Spotify in this century, you know, like I feel like he should be able to access them no matter where he goes or like maybe the Klingon copyright is so stringent that you have to have hard copies. I don't know. Yeah. If you pirate Klingon opera, like they'll cut your head off with a bat left. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's great stuff. But again, this is another slow build, right? So we're not really jumping right into it. We're kind of getting some of this some of this backstory. And I'm kind of glad because like I mentioned, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent where I'm at. Uh, I haven't, I haven't watched through deep space nine enough to remember like, Oh, middle of season five. This is where this is. This is where that is. So this is where Zial is got the hots for Garrick and he's kind of playing coy. They have been kind of budding their relationship just vis-a-vis the fact they're the only Cardassians in a Bajoran human station. So, I mean, that was kind of nice. I never really was huge, huge on the ZL Garrick relationship, but I think that it's interesting and it's believable just in the sense that they're the only two of their species. Yeah. I was kind of in the same boat with the the Garrick and Zial's relationship. It wasn't, it was interesting because, you know, Garrick wasn't really, didn't really seem to be reciprocating the feelings, but he just sort of went along with it, and I think we kind of find out that he just enjoyed being in the company of another Cardassian. And that scene was pretty... <laughs> I mean, Garrick has a great line in that scene where Ducat's got him, like, you know, over the rail, and, and, and then after he pulls him back up and comes to his senses, Garrick, like, Garrick says, Oh, I think that actually helped my back. Just classic Garrick. Yeah, it also gives Ducat kind of an interesting, you know, overprotective, shining up the shotgun, protective father. 
it doesn't suit him well just because he's such a jerk. It's hard to kind of see it from his side of it. Um, it's also, again, one of those things where it's like, oh, I guess this is where the Cardassians are okay to be on the station or like, you know, Ducat's just there. Nobody seems to blink an eye, so they're obviously not super villainous at this point. Um, it's, again, it's it's not a huge problem because I've already watched it once through. But if you're just watching this on TV, you might be like, wait, wasn't that guy? Like, didn't he just take over the station like not that long ago? And he's a villain and stuff. Like, do you think that him just kind of popping in, he's like, oh, I had to like refuel my ship or whatever it was. You think it's a little convenient? It is, but I feel like he was sort of popping in and out throughout the fourth and and beginning of fifth season because he was sort of waging that one man war against the Klingons. Right. Um, and he was kind I feel like he was also kind of like disgraced from the, the government. And because I remember there was that episode where he, you know, he steals the bird of prey, but he was like, at the beginning, he was like the captain of this like freighter that was, you know, doing like the worst things that you could do as a freighter. Because he was, you know, because he fell out of favor and they, you know, basically punished him by putting him on the ship. It is kind of a convenience that that he is able to do that. But I think it kind of works here because, you know, he just sort of drops in and here he is. Yeah, and I mean, it, it definitely works, right? So um, we also get a little bit of Kira Ducat, who, I mean, of all the, I'm going to call them a couple, but they never really are actually a romantic couple, but they're always like adversaries. And this is another another step, another section of their relationship. This is the very embittered Ducat. This is the angry for not protecting Zial after he specifically asked her to watch out for her, I believe. Um, yeah, this is kind of the tensions rebuilding amongst Kira and Dukat. I mean, is this kind of one of those things where, you know, they're, they're, fr- they're, they're, not, they're never friendly, but like they're fighting, then they kind of get along a bit better. They're fighting, they kind of get along. Is, does it get tiresome or, or is this like a relationship that you never bore of? Well, like you said, I mean, it sort of ebbs and flows. And um, I think it's sort of like Ducat at the beginning, he's pretty villainous. But then there's this period of time where he's sort of, they try to make him a little more sympathetic. And I think that's sort of reflected in his relationship with Kira because they become a little bit like less wanting to like strangle each other. They, I mean, maybe I would say they, begin to tolerate each other and then this is sort of where it goes back downhill again and it's it's kind of interesting how kira sort of is sort of represents how he's perceived by the the crew as a whole but i guess with her it's you know they sort of have a more personal connection because you know he was he did so many terrible things during the occupation and kira was you know fighting against him dated her mother you know yeah, yep, that's true, yes. Uh, I think that that line at the end of their conversation where Ducat says, you know, there was a time when Bajorans would really uh, be terrified of, uh, uh, you know, of a Card- uh, being on a Cardassian's bad side or something to that effect. And then she kind of goes like, yep, not anymore. And it's almost like what you, you're mentioning here with like she is the the audience or the crew and basically saying like, yeah, you know what? The Cardassians don't have teeth anymore, right? I mean, they're not they're no longer 
the threat that we we know of them being from the first few seasons and they've really kind of taken a major hit and that kind of interestingly sets up his next arc he he he's kind of um at a point of desperation yeah the line was uh there was a time when Bajorans took Cardassian threats very seriously or something like that. And Kira was like, and Kira was like, well, not anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting right now, knowing what happens, maybe, maybe we, maybe we all should have, uh, you know, kept a closer eye on Dukat because, because he ends up becoming a major part of the next, uh, you know, kind of the next major storyline. So be that as it may, this is really just uh, icing on on the cake, isn't it? Like these little bits and pieces, they're they're like we said, we're they're wrapping some stuff up and and kind of setting some stuff up. But I mean, the the reality is, the episode is, you know, Garrick and Worf. They're going to team them up, they're going to stick them on a runabout, and they're going to send them into this very inhospitable place, and we, uh, we're we along for the ride. So uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, Garrick, he's going to join Starfleet, and uh, he he's practicing lying, and he mentions that, you know, lying is a skill that you have to practice. Do you think that that's because, you know, his lie didn't work on Bashir early on, and so he's trying to, like, touch up his game, or is he really just trying to bug Worf and get under his skin? Um, I think it might be a little bit of both. I mean, I think there is some truth to his line that, you know, lying is a skill and if you need to be proficient or whatever or, or maintain a level of excellence, you must constantly practice. But I think he was also just trying to have a little bit of fun at Worf ex- Worf's expense. And um, I think he succeeded. That was a, that was a, uh, a, that was a really funny, funny scene. And pure, pure Garrick to just like spin up this whole lie, this whole ruse, just just to have a laugh. And I think I, I think when the exchange was all over, you know, he even said like, you know, Mister Worf, you're no fun at all. And Worf sort of looks at him and he's like, good. <laughs> I love that. It's just it's so Worf and it's so Garrick. Yeah, it's definitely like uh, you know Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, like the odd couple kind of bickering and fighting, which. I definitely appreciate, but I mean, again, this is this is a little bit of uh, levity before they cruise into this nebula. I forget the name of it. Uh, it's actually the same nebula as from Rathacon. Did you know that they like they just took it and flipped it upside down and and reversed it and away you go. Uh, they cruise in here and uh, dun dun dun. There is like a million ships, I guess. Like uh, this just happens to be where they're staging. I'm assuming it's just the first of uh, the invasion fleet. Um, We get a little bit of a fight, but nothing too, too crazy in terms of action. Um, This is kind of like the shock that we never even talked about, right? Like this in and of itself is kind of a big deal. Just the fact that, you know, they cruise in and, oh, wait a minute, the Dominion isn't messing around. Like it's looking very much like they're going to uh, go through the wormhole and attack. Well, yeah, I think I mentioned before we started here, like I totally forgot that this part of the episode was even in here. Like if you had, if you had told me, you know, if you had like sort of given me like five seconds on Google and then said, oh, what happens in this episode? I would have been able to tell you everything about Garrick and Worf going to that prison and Worf being forced to fight and Garrick having to like crawl through the wall. I would have been able to tell you everything about that part of it. And I would have completely glossed over the fact that, you know, that this is where the, you know, the Dominion sends a giant fleet 
and they think they're all going to, you know, they think they're going to attack the station, and all of a sudden, whoop, they, like, veer to Cardassia, and Dukat goes with them, and, and that's where the Cardassians join the Dominion, which is a huge, 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 huge part of the, you know, sort of overall story, and I, I mean, I, I completely forgot that that was also part of this episode. Yeah, me too. I mean, once it happened, I, I kind of was like, oh, yeah, that's when, when this happens as well. Um, they don't do a very good job of kind of piecing this, because... They send Worf and Garrick, and Worf is able to kind of send off one last message before uh, they eventually kind of get taken to the prison. It's basically like imminent uh, ships, whatever. It's very kind of truncated. And then there's this weird little bit, and, and I know what they were trying to do, but I don't know that it was necessary, was they send Kira in the Defiant, and it seems like she's gone for like five minutes. And then she comes back and she's like, oh, yeah, guys, there's like a huge fleet. They're all coming in. Do you think that maybe Worf should have just had like a slightly longer message and they could have just avoided sending Kira in? That seems so redundant to me. Yeah, I, I never really thought of that. But yeah, things happen pretty quickly. They're like, oh, we lost contact with our like listening post at such and such a place. And then like 30 seconds later, it's like, oh, there's the goes another one. And then, oh, there goes the one on the other side of the wormhole. And here comes Kira. Right. Like it, it did kind of things seem to move like pretty quickly through that part. And yeah, maybe skipping that part out where and and just sort of having the, the listening post going dead a, a, would have maybe been a little bit better. And there's also like, like isn't the Domin the Dominion space doesn't butt right up against the wormhole at this point in the game, does it? Not not that I I don't think so. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like it seemed like it would have to be a little ways away. All right, Matt. So they take Garrick and Worf down to space Alcatraz, essentially. Uh, and <laughs> of course it has a protective breathing bubble that goes over top of it and it's impenetrable, inescapable. Um, how many shows slash movies can you name where there is an, an impenetrable prison that somebody inevitably breaks out of or breaks into? There's quite a few. <laughs> I don't know if I can think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure like I, there, there's gotta be a lot of them out there that I mean. Wasn't there a TV show for a long time where it was literally just a guy going into like different prisons and, and breaking out? It was called Prison Break. Yes. And it was supposed to be like an every time it was supposed to be impenetrable, but he breaks out. Uh, Escape from Alcatraz and stuff obviously comes to mind. I do like a lot, actually, that this is not just a pointless prison because one of the things that doesn't really make sense about prisons when you're dealing with like such cutthroat horrible uh aliens is like why would you even keep them alive right like it's not worth the food and the energy and the guards to to even have a prison but i love with this particular prison that they're essentially just using it as like a training ground to fight Klingons and humans and to learn their strategies so that the Jem'Hadar are going to be keen to all the fighting styles and stuff like that. That is such a brilliant little, I don't even know that they mentioned it, but we're kind of left to, to piece that together. How great is that, that this is not really a prison, it's more of a, uh, a training area for Jem'Hadar guys? Well, it seems very Jem'Hadar to me. You know, these are very proficient fighters and soldiers and it would make sense for them to want to learn how to fight 
these, you know, other aliens that they're not familiar with and get, you know, learn how to defeat them. Yeah, it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty clever and pretty uh, fitting thing for them to, to do this rather than just let them rot away in a cell. Or just kill them, right? Yeah, or just, uh, you know, fling... What did the Vort, or what did the first say? He's like, there's nothing out outside the compound but vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> I do like, too, that he, that first guy also mentions that they've been waiting for another Klingon because, you know, that is seems to be the, the best uh, practice and, and the best fighting opponent. So, yeah, this is such a great setup. And, uh, I mean, I know that we get another whole episode uh, on this prison asteroid uh but it's it's a lot of fun um and of course i think we already mentioned it but it is worth restating uh one of the greatest star trek reveals surprises of all time there is somebody who's in isolation he's a close friend to martok and the big reveal is is that it is Julian Bashir, man, e- even though I knew it was coming, it's still so good. The fact that they're wearing the like Deep Space Nine Voyager uniforms is just so smart. You immediately, even now, I'm like, oh, Rapture was like the one with the gray episode, the gray outfit. So like, what happened between then and now and everything like that? I don't know that they planned it that specifically, but I, I do think that it is. Uh, it is genius one kind of counter is that in that episode um, Rapture which we we actually reviewed in the first season he did brain surgery on Cisco Uh, the O'Brien's baby was delivered uh, as well there's that episode with the changeling that was like the little baby one that was sick and he refused to help that doesn't maybe make a whole lot of sense that he was a changeling during all that stuff but who cares this is such a legendary surprise it's very like the impact is humongous because he's wearing that old uniform and you immediately start to think like how long how long has he been replaced and i think he does mention that it's been a month i think yeah it it wasn't a huge like it wasn't like like it wasn't like years right it it was like a month or six weeks it wasn't a huge amount of time but martok was there for years yeah martok i think was there for at least two years he said I think it was two years. He looked pretty good. I feel like he would be way more roughed up. Well, his eye was was pretty pretty messed up. But yeah, like the fact that they put him in the old uniform that was like a like I think it was probably kind of obvious when they sort of were thinking through this. How can we make this really jump? Well, how can you how can you do it in a way that visually you're like, oh my god, it's the it's the old Bashir. It's you know, if he had the gray uniform, you'd be like, wait, what's Bashir doing here? Did he did he go as well or something? It's just it's such a visual cue, right? Well, or it's like, oh, has he been there like a day, a week? Like when you see that old uniform and it's been two episodes or three episodes since they introduced it, it's like, whoa, man, and and it was all dirty, it was all grimy, and it looked like he'd been he's got there like for... a beard now, yeah, exactly, yeah. So like, the, just the, the the way that they made the visual changes to Bashir, the uniform, the grime, and all that, like you see that, and you're like, holy cow, like how long has he been there for, and how long has this other Bashir been like wreaking havoc, and what is he? up to what is he planning like this it's just there's so many things that hit you all at once just when they like sort of fling him in the in the cell and you see his face very very big this arguably is 
and I've already told you this before, but I'll reiterate it, is that this cloak and dagger, don't know who to trust, don't know who's a changeling, who who is human, is some of the best stuff that we probably ever got. Um, the episode where they find out that there's all the changelings on Earth impersonating uh, key political figures and Cisco has to go back and help them. Classic episode. So, so good. Um, the only thing I really didn't like, and I don't remember this, so maybe it's just kind of watching it with fresh eyes. I hate how the Bashir on the station, as soon as the audience is revealed that uh you know that he's a changeling he completely changes now he's like a mustache twirling 1920s smirking villain and it's like oh you didn't need to do that right like he's in the elevator and he literally gets like the grinch smile uh man that kind of ruins it a little bit um i really wish they hadn't done that did you feel the same way yeah, they like like Martok is all like, oh, I've heard that the the guy that replaced me is responsible for the death of millions of Klingons, and Bashir's like, I wonder what my uh, changeling's up to, and then it cuts to him in the elevator, and it's just like you say the Grinch smile. Yeah, that's that's like, horrible. I, you know, I I think that was partly acting. Like I, I remember reading that um, Alexander Sittage had no idea they were gonna do this until he like they handed him the script to be like, okay, have this ready for next week. And he's like, holy crap, my guy's being replaced by a changeling. And so he actually tried to do some things to kind of make him seem a little bit more Off. evil, evil once the, the reveal was made. It's a little too much, man. Yeah. The kind of smirking in the elevator, like, uh, but not even that. It's even how he interacts because O'Brien's like, Oh, Bashir, like you're up awfully early. He's like, Oh, just bringing you some toast and marmalade. It's like, what? What is this? This is like so out of character. It's so like, I I love this episode. Don't get me wrong. I just wish that they had left the guy on the station being Bashir kind of more like he had been been playing it because it was like, it's so deep, the infiltration. That's That's the part of it that is so scary is that like, oh, you could be replaced and nobody will know. They are so good at replacing you. The voice will be the same. The look will be the same. And they can even act like you while they're like sabotaging. So that's the part that I kind of feel like was missed. Um, also, the other thing that is just totally tragic, um, it was never used enough for my personal taste. And I, I also think that they could have went so much further with it was that the blood testing for determining who was a, a changeling and who wasn't was so genius. I loved any time they did that. It reeked of like, remember the thing, uh, that episode where, or the, um, the movie where the, the thing can infest you when you're in the Arctic and everything. God, that was so good. I wish that they had somehow been able to keep that going. But, of course, eventually it it, it, it just doesn't be – it's not effective anymore or something. I can't remember why they ditch it. But, uh, man, isn't that such a great little way to, you know, who who is your enemies and everything? I, I feel like they could have done more. But Remember the old Way of the Warrior where Martok just, like, takes his knife out and just slices his yeah. hand open? <laughs> Well, I mean, it would have been a great thing to do, right? For, you know, like if you think about anti-vaxxers and stuff, somebody who's like, I'm not doing the blood test, you know, like that. Oh, well, if you don't want to do it, I guess you must be a changeling, <laughs> you know? Well, I'm not. I'm My word should be good enough. Like there's just so many ways you could take it. I, I always love that stuff. And uh, I, I thought that it was a great time that they that they did it here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, even in the prison, they managed to do it. 
You know, they managed to like. Yeah, sort of... they found something sharp and did it. <laughs> hey, that's the only. It's the only way to know, right? To prove it, yeah. Uh, now back on the station, they are they're privy to the this big invasion fleet, and so they are going to you know kind of pull out uh, the last resort, I guess is it is, uh, and that is they're going to actually legitimately blow up the wormhole. It's a little bit cheesy and a little bit like. Uh, I don't know, but they they say that oh we can blow it up and like the profits will be fine, you know. Like that part was like a little bit underwhelming. I kind of almost wish that they were like, hey, listen, we're gonna have to just kill these things. Like there's there's no way around it. Well, I feel like it's something that they and they even mentioned that like someone on the Trill, I think it was the Trill homeworld, like some scientists had been working on this, and I feel like that's something that Cisco would always probably want to have in his back pocket. As like, you know what, like we have these very adversarial and very territorial people on the other side of the wormhole. It's probably only a matter of time before they're going to, you know, set their sights on the Alpha Quadrant. And we are going to have to keep them out because they have a lot of ships and a lot of, you know, really bruising shock troops. So I, I feel like I don't really I didn't really have a problem with them having this sort of ability to collapse it without doing any damage, because I feel like that's something that they would have needed to have in their back pocket. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Deep Space Nine, man, is that they're so good at writing interesting things that even little throwaway things like this, like just the the politics, the the ramifications and the follow through of blowing up the wormhole it, it is like three minutes of screen time this could be like a two-part episode in and of itself right like literally starfleet deciding to blow it up the bajorans protesting it kira and cisco at each other's throats like this could be a two-part episode just talking about blowing up the wormhole and it boils down to just a couple of minutes i think kira kind of is a little bit too fast to to, to kind of accept it um, but I mean, this is again, not really about blowing up the wormhole. This isn't about, uh, the, the morality of that. It's all about the fact that when they go to do it, it's been sabotaged. And so now they know somebody is, uh, infiltrated the, uh, the station, uh, a little bit cheesy as well, where it's like that one panel is like, sparks out and like oh doesn't work we're jumping ahead a little bit here but we might as well kind of go to it um what are your thoughts as ships are pouring out of the wormhole and there's a saboteur on board do you think that maybe they could have done the flip reverse and perhaps shown that it was sabotaged and then flip back to the prison and you see that the new bashir the old bashir is there and then you piece together oh no it's the the bashir on the station is a changeling and that's how the episode ends well, they definitely could have maybe reordered things a little bit so that it would have been a little bit more shocking to have, like you say, have the, what was it, the graviton beams to collapse the wormhole not work. Uh, and then, you know, maybe the changeling Bashir is kind of like at a, you know, at a station sort of off to the side. Yeah. And then it, and he just kind of has like a look or something. And he's kind of like got this look on his face. And then you cut back to the prison and they're like, oh, here comes our friend from Solitary. And they, you know, throw Bashir in and then it's to be continued. That that to me, I think, works better. But I mean, 
there there may be reasons for why it was ordered this way and i mean i guess the visual of all the ships pouring out of the wormhole is also pretty like uh oh what's this going to turn into right so i'm not necessarily um not necessarily against it. I just really kind of feel like it would have been much more shocking that way. But again, that's just the writers are so good that they have three cliffhanger moments in this <laughs> one episode, which is just crazy. I mean, I don't really think that uh, that's any uh, easy feat, to say the least. Um, and then we have our Empire Strikes Back moment, which in my memory, this was so much deeper, so much heavier, so much more shocking. I don't know. Maybe the I'm just used to it now or something. What are your thoughts on Garrick? I am your father. Well, it's like I said earlier, I mean, it was it was pretty well played out because, you know, Tane's not just going to admit it and he's not just going to do it. There's got to be some like wordplay and some verbal maneuvering before, you know, before we get our nice little shocking uh reveal that you know Tane is Garrick's father you know it was a much different circumstance than Empire Strikes Back obviously I mean Tane's on his deathbed you know he's he's I mean what didn't the didn't Martok come to Garrick at one point and he's like you know if you have anything to say to him you better say you better it now go say it, yeah. yeah so you know it was it was a different way of sort of having the same kind of shocking reveal but I I thought it was I thought it was you know, it was a bit subdued, but I think that's sort of circumstantial. You know, how much drama or how much flair can you really have when the guy's like, you know, on the verge of keeling over, you know? I thought it was good and I thought it was fitting considering the two characters involved. I did like how he put up the front and then there's a point where Garrick literally is like, hey, like you're dying, you know, you can drop the the, the official government secret talk uh and they do get a nice little moment just talking about i guess it seemed like some sort of picnic or some sort of like special father-son day that they once had and it almost is alluded to the fact that like it literally may have been one day where they actually were able to do something nice and the rest of the time it was these missions and stuff so i think it's it is nice closure in that respect well and i also like that sort of tane tane immediately like starts like listing off all these guys that like i guess he wanted killed and, yeah, and he's I know. Like, it's like, you know, watch out for so-and-so and, -so and uh, I hope you take care of uh, this guy. And then don't forget about, uh, you know, Gull, whatever. And Garrick's like, it's all taken care of. Your your enemies have all been eliminated. And he, you know, and, it, you know, that's that's a very Garrick and Tane thing to do. You know, go go through the go through the laundry list of people that you've pissed off over <laughs> yeah. your lifetime and make sure they're all dead. But I mean, the end, the the final request, right? Like the deathbed wish is for Garrick to fight against the Dominion. And uh, as we already know, that ends up kind of being true. So that is kind of an important thing kind of moving forth because Garrick, I mean, at certain points, you, you're never sure where he's going to stand. But this definitely leans him towards the fact that like he's going to uh, whatever whatever side he's on, it's going to be the side that's against the Dominion. And I do like that. I, I think that that was a nice bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it maybe explains some of Garrick's motivations, like as the war sort of officially breaks out. Especially when the the Cardassians join the Dominion and he literally has to go against Cardassia. It really shows how loyal he was to Tane that he would literally basically sell out his own people and uh, that ends up happening. So, um, yeah, really, really well done. 
All right. Now, I mean, I feel like we just blasted through that. This episode is such a, a you know, a bullet in the chamber. It it flies by. It it is so exciting. There's lots of twists and turns and things like that. Uh, the same token, it's one of those episodes where it's it's very story based. You know, I don't know that we're uh, we're not getting a lot of morals and meanings here. This is very much story based and this is very much character based. So uh, as we kind of dive into the characters, as we typically do with Deep Space Nine, let's kind of more talk about uh, where the character is at in this point in the in the seasons in the series, um, rather than the performances. I think we can just agree straight ahead that the performances across the board are, are top notch. Um, we don't need to necessarily go into that but let's kind of talk about uh each of them individually so we've got garrick um this is i guess the end of the garrick tane kind of story arc is it satisfying as a whole you know what it's it's interesting that uh, we we end up talking about tane and garrick because i mean as you know i i reviewed a stitch in time quite a while ago and and tane is very prominent in that that novel um, and I mean, I know this isn't considered canon, and I mean, you know how I feel about canon, but regard, uh, you know, anyways, it's interesting that when you go back and look at the episodes, you you kind of maybe think that yeah, that it does kind of make sense that they were that. I, I think the idea is that Garrick is like sort of an illegitimate son, and that's why it was kept on the DL, um, because you know, as Cardassians are very very strict about you know, family being the most important thing. So, yeah, I, th- I mean, I, overall, I think when you go back and sort of look at it, you can kind of see things that kind of hint at it. You know, Tane is very, very hard on him and has very high expectations of him, which, you know, you may expect from a father towards their, you know, father for their son. So, yeah, it, the, that whole thing was, was actually quite interesting, uh, especially that other two-part episode where we, we, you know, we really get to see those two together quite a lot. Yeah, and I mean, I guess kind of moving towards Tane, um, what, so I mean, are we kind of left to believe that he's been put into this prison and that there's a changeling out there in impersonating Tane it's hard to kind of remember like he has basically he was basically retired wasn't he like he wasn't really an active member of the upper orders of the Cardassian or anything so um are we left to kind of believe that that's the case or he's just such an enemy they were just going to throw him in this prison and teach him a lesson or when are we just kind of left to leave it to our own imaginations I don't know that's an interesting question I mean I think it would be I think it would be hard to believe that after he was sent on this, you know, suicide mission, that he would have survived. So maybe they didn't, they thought, ah, everyone thinks he's dead. If we send a changeling back, that might be suspicious. So yeah, just let him, let his, let his heart. uh, It's interesting that it was his heart that was causing the, uh, that caused him to die. I don't know if you noticed that when, when Martok, they were like, what's wrong with him? And Martok said, oh, it's his heart. It's a very sort of poetic kind of, kind of way to for him to die because there you know and garrick's follow-up to that was well there are many people out there who would say he doesn't have one a nice little line as well <laughs> um yeah I, for me i feel like this is definitely one of those scenarios where they didn't they, they could have really worn this out and i mean everybody kind of remembers that character and is only in a handful of episodes which is is really well done the next one is such an interesting one because honestly you could throw uh, any Deep Space Nine episode 
at somebody and it's hard to remember what's Dakot doing and uh, you know which incarnation are we dealing with this is Desperation Ducat I'm going to call him um, which is one of my favorite Ducats actually um, where does Desperation Ducat fit on your your list you know like Ducat is really he's almost like a professional wrestler in the sense that he has so many gimmicks <laughs> and he's constantly going heel or, or turning face um where does this one rank for you kind of in the in the pantheon i think the most interesting ducat is when he's like just full villain and i i think the sort of stage before this where they tried to make him a little more sympathetic was interesting but the ducat here like He's at a point where he will do anything to get back in the good graces of Cardassians. That makes for some interesting choices on his part sort of throughout maybe like late season four, early season five. And I mean, Ducat is a character that is always interesting, you know, trying to make sense of what's going on in his head is, is always kind of a, an interesting exercise. Yeah, I definitely feel like this one particularly, though, where he is so radical in in terms of what he's willing to do um, makes it very unpredictable and I think leads to some great moments for him. I think that like religious zealot Dukat is one of my least favorite ones. The one before this one, like you mentioned, I, I'm not crazy on. Like evil Cardassian powerhouse Dukat is a great one. Um, I also am a big fan of Dukat at the end when he becomes so desperate that he shacks up with Odami uh, uh, Kai, uh, which is a whole other bit. But anyway, um, yeah, this is a great period of time for, for, for Dukat, I think, anyway. Next up is uh, Zial. This is played by Melanie Smith. I believe this is her first time playing Zial. This is late stage Zial, I guess, because we know how this goes. Zial number three. <laughs> Got more actors than Alexander Roshenko. Almost, yep. You'll remember Melanie Smith as the uh, Jerry's girlfriend on Seinfeld that made out that were that he made out with during Schindler's List. <laughs> is it really? I didn't know that. That's funny. It is, yeah. During Schindler's List, <laughs> and then she also goes with them to the Hamptons and catches right. George with his trunks down. <laughs> I was in the pool. <laughs> Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, so under under the Cardassian Bajoran makeup is uh, one of Jer Jerry's old girlfriends. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Zeal was never really a character that I found all that compelling. I feel like she was just strictly there because it gave an added dimension to Ducat, and it gave him, you know, it it made for some more some interesting motivation for his actions in various points. I, I never really found the character all that interesting. I mean, I I, I mentioned that her attraction to Garrick was was kind of interesting but um uh, you know really beyond that I didn't really find her to be all that compelling of a character yeah I I would agree I definitely feel like it's uh I I know what they're trying to do and the problem is is that there's just so many great characters on Deep Space Nine that she just kind of gets lost in the shuffle to a certain extent um and there's just so much other stuff going on it's so hard hitting that it's just kind of like oh yeah Zial yeah that she's okay speaking and and maybe shifting to somebody who's a little bit more uh more of a heavy hitter and I think one that we can all agree on uh this is Martok now Martok is interesting because we have seen him before correct the changeling version yes right and we definitely get 
yeah, we, we kind of get this great introduction where we, we learn that he's been fighting amongst these guys for like two years. And man, he's likable. Uh, he ends up being kind of one of my favorite side characters on Deep Space Nine. And um, I, I don't know if it's just the betrayal or, 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 or what exactly it is. But, you know, some characters, some actors, they just... Yeah, chew scenery, and I would say that this is is one of them. What are your thoughts on? I guess this is we might as well just call him like early, early Martok. Yeah, in part two, I wrote in my notes, Martok is such a great Klingon. Yeah, really. Just trying to stick strictly to what we see in the first episode here. Um, you know, you it, you're right. It is a good introduction, and you do get the sense that this is a guy who is very concerned about honor. He mentions that his like imposter is responsible for the death of, you know, millions of Klingons. And he's, you know, and he's genuinely remorseful for that. And he, he's not happy about that, that some guy impersonating him is, you know, causing all this mayhem and, and hardship for, for his people. And, and, you know, and he's been fighting these Jem'Hadar as best he can. And I mean, he's, you know, he's looks like he's not having such a great time with it, but yeah, I, we, I think it's a great introduction to, to Martok who, uh, you know, over the course of the next two and a half seasons is going to become a very important part of the crew and, 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 you know, really a great, well-rounded character over the course of, of the rest of the series. I do love to, it's really super subtle, but uh, right when Worf walks up and introduces himself to uh, Martok, I love that Martok mentions like, oh, I've heard of you. Do you think that that's like a nice little rub? Like the fact that Worf is known throughout the, uh, you know, the quadrant. Do you also think that maybe he knows of him for like a bad reason? Or do you think that he knows of him for a good reason? It could be both. I mean, he True. was dishonored and, uh, you know, next generation. He's also Starfleet, the only Klingon in Starfleet. Like there's there's lots of reasons why he could potentially know who it is. Um, but I thought it was, it seemed like it was... It seemed like it was kind of like, I know you're a good dude, you know, that kind of thing. That was sort of the impression I got, too. It's not like he was like, oh, I've heard of you. Right. <laughs> uh, and then I guess last, but certainly not least, or maybe least, I don't know. I don't really have much to say. James Horan plays Ikatik. Uh, Ikatiki, Tiki Tiki Tata, I don't know how you pronounce this Jem'Hadar name. Uh, it is uh, kind of the main guy running the prison. Do you have anything that you kind of wanted to mention about this guy, or is it basically like we can just move on? Only that we've encountered James Horan before. He was, oh, okay. the, remember in Descent Part 2, there was that really sort of arrogant tactical officer. Right. That was okay, him. yeah. And he was also um, Joe Brill in that episode with the uh, Ferengi scientist of Next Generation. Oh, okay, cool. And I think he was also in the pilot of Enterprise. Okay, this is, if anybody's... I think, he's like a, I think it was like a Sulu. Yeah, guy. if anybody's wondering why Matt always beats me at the end of the year trivia <laughs> uh, championship, <laughs> you're getting a little preview right now. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have much to kind of say, and, and I kind of feel like maybe the production notes are slightly more interesting. So um, just really off the top, uh, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, Derek Garth is mentioned in memorandum at the beginning of this episode. And shockingly, he died in a car accident. He was a grip on the show, uh, and he died in a car accident heading to work for this episode, which was, uh, was super... Um, yeah, super, super sad. And I mean, I guess like just statistically that kind of thing may happen. But yeah, sometimes when they do those things, you're not exactly sure what it was and that's where it was. I feel like 
uh, we already talked about, but uh, Siddick was not told that he was going to be a changeling. That's why the performance is basically the same in the previous three episodes. Uh, it's the first real appearance of Martok, so that's kind of a, a, a big moment. Uh, there's also a lot of like dropped lines and uh, kind of talk about um, old episodes and things that had happened. Did you did you pick up on any of those, or or am I going to have to kind of read them out to you? There were a few, um, like, wasn't there a bunch of lines where, like, Worf was like, oh, I was eager to fight a Jem'Hadar, and now he gets his chance. Yeah, I don't know. There there, I, there were a bunch of other ones, but it was really, like, sort of small things. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of it comes down just to the fact that, like, we had seen Tane before, like you had mentioned in those four episodes. Um, there was that episode, The Way of the Warrior, where Martok's son... Uh, that's the one where Worf like embarrasses him. Completely embarrasses him. <laughs> yeah. Takes his knife and then uh, that was a pretty funny scene. Martok walks in and he's like, "You, you robbed my son of his honor." And then Worf says, "Now that," or he's like, "Give him my, give him uh, his knife, or I'll take it from you." And Worf's like, "Well, now that you're here, I no longer need it." <laughs> he basically <laughs> does it just to get a chance to talk to Martok. Uh, there's also the scene, there's the scene where Garrick and Worf are in the runabout. Garrick recalls, uh, the fight that, uh, Worf and he had in the episode Broken Link, which we reviewed here on RTR. Yes. He yes. also references the attack on New Bajor, which happened in the episode The Jem'Hadar. He mentions somebody named Lenara Khan, who has worked on the wormhole in Rejoined. And there is a very quick like blink and you miss it remark about Earl Grey tea, which uh, is obviously a shot or a mention uh, to Jean-Luc Picard. So um, yeah, lots of little things in there, little Easter eggs um, that uh, are pretty cool. Um, The other major, major, major Easter egg in here is that there is actually a dropped line on uh, the fact that there was a recent Borg attack. And based on the fact that, uh, First contact came out right around Rapture, I guess, when they switched over the uniforms. I'm assuming that that Borg attack is, of course, battle at Sector 001. Did you pick up on that one, Matt? Yes, I most definitely did, yeah. Yeah, I think that maybe that should have been kind of a bigger part, like the fact that Worf left to go on the Enterprise for that huge, like, back-in-time adventure. But uh, I guess they kind of had their own thing on the go, so I can uh, forgive it. Uh, Something I cannot forgive is there is no Jake in this episode. (laughs) This is obviously an episode that you like, but why don't you tell me kind of the thing that you liked the most about it? Give me your favorite quote from the episode, your final thoughts, and a rating out of five cliffs to hang off of. I think my favorite line, you already kind of alluded to it just a second ago, but I'm going to read it out to you. So Garrick says uh, he's... He's on the runabout with Worf, and he says, I just don't see why these runabout replicators can't provide a more varied menu. I'd like to get my hands on that fellow Earl Grey and tell him a thing or two about tea leaves. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a kind of a dig against uh, Picard, I guess, you know, because he just loves his Earl Grey. Um, and there's another funny scene between with Worf and Cisco where they're, you know, Worf sort of giving, or Cisco's sort of giving him his final pep talk before they, they head out, and Worf says... Uh, at the first sign of betrayal, I will kill him, but I promise to return the body intact. And Cisco goes, I assume that's a joke. And Worf sort of looks at him like a totally straight face. And he goes, we will see. <laughs> that is a great I one. just, that's so, so, so Worf, you know, unintentionally funny. Um, as for final thoughts, I mean, there's really, you know, this, there's a lot to this episode. I mean, like I said, 
I totally forgot the whole Divinian fleet. I totally forgot that this was sort of where, I mean, in part two, spoiler alert, Dukat ends up joining them and Cardassia ends up joining the Dominion. And, uh, you know, there's really, the beginning is kind of slow, but I think if you kind of look, watch these two back to back, it kind of makes sense to that we got sort of this slow build up because in the second part, there's just so much that, that happens. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's hard to pick out a lot of things that, that aren't really great about this episode. I mean, there's there's some good acting. Uh, you know, there's the, the writing's good. There's some good, you know, sort of light moments just before you head into something heavy. There's some crazy uh, reveals towards the end. Uh, there's a, a fairly significant cliffhanger that sort of leaves you wondering, like, oh, boy, what's going to happen next week? You know, to me, this is, uh, you know, this this is one that, I think if I were to revisit my my top ten list, I think I would seriously consider putting this and and part two in it. And uh, so I think uh, you know I'm gonna go with a score of uh, five cliffs to hang off of uh, out of five. I mean this is a this is an this is a really great episode with a lot a lot of things to like. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Like this is a classic Deep Space Nine episode. Uh, I I don't have much bad to say the only thing i don't love is that the changeling bashir basically changes his uh his acting as the audience finds out that he's a changeling which i don't like uh but other than that like man i sat down and watched this and and when it was coming to the close i actually checked my watch like is this already over um it's just so intriguing and there's so many layers and so many great performances um it's it really is a gush fest all around uh i am going to give it five out of five uh cliffs to hang off of myself i don't know that it's the greatest cliffhanger even of Deep Space Nine, I definitely think that some of the season finales that we got were much better. And obviously, like Best of Both Worlds and stuff are like all-time greats. But man, this is totally uh, in the running for a top 10 Deep Space Nine episode for sure. So excellent, excellent episode. And not only that, but like I am really pumped to, to see the second half. And if you have a cliffhanger where that's the case, then you did something right. <laughs> All right, and uh, that is the indicator that uh, this episode is over. And uh, Matt, uh, you are looking uh, fairly relaxed, and uh, so am I, because <laughs> we do not need to be put into the spotlight. We do not need to do a recall this week. Uh, we are, of course, going to look at the second part uh, by Inferno's Light. And uh, you, I mean, you kind of already talked about it, and since. You know, we don't necessarily want to uh, to go off without anything in particular. Do you have any fond memories for this one, like leading in, just to kind of uh, give ourselves a little recap here on the back end? Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that they set up is, you know, pays off pretty well in the second part. It's a little bit more action packed. There's a little bit more excitement, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a very good episode. All right, well, you'll have to come back in two weeks' time in order to uh, check that out, and uh, we will uh, look at By Inferno's Light. So long, folks. Bye. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs.
Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Her First Trek, a Star Trek preview podcast. You, have you ever heard of the Spock? No, but I'm just doing the hand movements, so I know exactly what it is. So was. I used to work for a guy, brilliant guy, good good mate, who used to joke about Spocking people. Where is this guy? I know it's like if you didn't if you didn't bust your ass in work, he was going to Spock you. Oh, yeah. oh, that's, oh. I mean, nowadays you couldn't really say that stuff. No. And you can only assume, if you put yourself in the, if you do the Live Long and Prosper uh, gesture, you imagine, look at the hand, and if it's used in a sexual context of how one might be spocking someone, so you might be entering two different places, so to speak. I think you should edit this out. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Ladies Trek Library, a podcast by women with a passion for Star Trek books. The author of this book, Dana Kramer Rolls, this is the only Star Trek book she's ever written, which would explain why I've never okay. read anything from her before. Yeah, I heard that she did write some other sci-fi books, but no other Star Trek. Yeah, and she does seem like like she's a fan. It seems, from the way she handled the characters, I, I would say she is a fan of Star Trek. Yeah, I definitely got the feeling that she was a fan. Um, and knew the characters. She has a PhD in folklore and history of religions. Cool. So that makes sense. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Starbase 1, the Star Trek Online podcast. I don't really think that's a good idea. I order you to do it right now. Warning. The structural integrity field has collapsed. This is Admiral Quinn. You will be assigned to Starbase 1. Welcome to Starbase 1. I'm Colin. I'm Admiral Aaron. I'm Dave. I'm Steve. And I'm Tom. Starbase 1 is a dedicated Star Trek Online podcast. If you're a first-time listener, hello. If you're a dedicated decade listener and you've been wondering where the hell we are, we're back. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.